Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. Episode 41, Polybius of Megalopolis, Historian of the Hellenistic Age. History is written by the victors. At least, that's how the saying goes. In truth, this tends to be a fairly accurate appraisal, at least in our dealings with the ancient world. There are no surviving accounts of the Gauls who were conquered by Julius Caesar, but Caesar's commentaries are some of the most long-lasting and widely read literature from any classical author. The various peoples depicted on the Behistun inscription cannot protest the claims of their submission of earth and water to Darius I, and on the inverse, there are no accounts from Persia that chronicle the conquests of Alexander the Great. However, exceptions to this maxim do exist. Josephus, one of the only surviving members of a band of Judeans who rebelled against the Roman Empire, wrote a history of his defeat by the future emperors Vespasian and Titus. In the context of the Hellenistic world, we have Polybius of Megalopolis. Megalopolis was a city of the Achaean League, a political body centered in the region of Achaea in Greece that was forced to submit to the up-and-coming Roman Republic during the middle 2nd century BC, with Polybius serving as a political hostage in Rome. Because of his unique position, Polybius sought to write a universal history to explain to his fellow Greeks how the Romans managed to conquer the known world in 50 years, and is perhaps the finest historian to emerge following Thucydides and his account on the Peloponnesian War. While perhaps not as stirring as the patriotic Livy, nor possessing the cynical wit of Tacitus, Polybius surpasses both as a master of his craft, actively emulating Thucydides in an attempt to provide the most reliable and accurate account of the incredibly transformative years of the Middle Hellenistic period, setting a benchmark for all future historians to follow. In this episode, we're going to take a brief look at Polybius' life and histories, in order to better contextualize what is likely the most important written history of the Hellenistic period, and to do justice for one of the finest historians the Greco-Roman world has ever produced. For reference, I am relying mainly on the Robin Waterfield translation, which was published by Oxford World Classics. There is also a version put up by Penguin Classics as well, but sadly both editions do not contain the entire surviving work, and have to be supplemented by either online editions or translations by Loeb. At the time of writing this in early 2020, a version of Polybius' histories is currently underway by the landmark Ancient Histories, who have done a wonderful job with authors like Herodotus and Thucydides, but no word on their projected ETA for its delivery. In order to understand the work, it is critical to understand the man who wrote it. Polybius was born sometime around the turn of the 3rd century BC in the city of Megalopolis, located in the region of Arcadia in Greece. The Arcadians were members of the Achaean League, with Polybius' family being prominent members, and Polybius' father Lycortus served as the strategos on two different occasions. Polybius found himself naturally drawn into the larger politics of the League at a very young age, even carrying the ashes of the great Achaean politician Philopoemon for his funeral in the year 182. Polybius' first political position, not counting his acting as part of an embassy to Ptolemy V of Egypt, was to be the second-in-command of the Achaean army, serving as the cavalry commander in 170-169. Unfortunately, it couldn't have come at a more awkward time, as the Roman Republic had been at war with the Macedonian king Perseus, and the Achaean League had by at this point nearly torn itself apart in trying to decide what the best course of action was regarding its policy towards Rome. 
The Romans had emerged as a major player in the political scene in Greece and the greater Hellenistic world during the 210s BC, as the then king of Macedon, Philip V, attempted to strike at the Roman holdings at Illyria while Hannibal Barca kept them distracted in the Second Punic War. While ultimately a stalemate, the Romans did not take this insult lightly, and after they had managed to force Carthage into submission, they immediately turned to Philip and crushed his army at Kynoscephali in 197. With newfound confidence, the Romans then steamrolled the Seleucid king Antiochus III at Magnesia in 190, proving to the Greeks that there was a new sheriff in town and that they were not to be taken lightly. Polybius's attempts at moderate acclamation pleased neither the hard-nosed Roman commanders nor the pro-Roman members of the Achaean League, who accused him of anti-Roman sentiments, and he was subsequently placed in a group of a thousand suspect Achaeans to be deported to Italy to serve as political hostages. Many of these hostages would never see their homes again, some preferring to commit suicide or die of old age and disease, but for prisoners they were treated with a reasonable level of respect. Thanks to his position, Polybius was given a far better fare than his compatriots, and was allowed to live in a gilded cage in Rome itself, rather than being forced to stay in some Italian backwater. During his stay of nearly 17 years, Polybius's talents and intellectual pursuits managed to ingratiate himself into the upper crust of Roman society during the mid-late 2nd century BC. His closest companion and eventual benefactor would be the young Scipio Aemilianus, the adopted grandson of Scipio Africanus, an eventual sacker of Carthage. The pair met when Polybius was in his mid to late 30s, and they would remain lifelong friends, no doubt given their shared military and intellectual tastes, and this was likely the reason that Polybius would be given a large degree of freedom within Rome and Italy as a whole. Other Roman connections would include the taciturn Cato the Elder, with whom Polybius attempted to negotiate better treatment for his fellow Achaean hostages, to some success. In 150, the exiles were allowed to return home, though Polybius would ultimately remain among the staff of the Scipiones and was present during Aemilianus' siege of Carthage in 146. This was probably for the best, given the destruction of the Achaean League and the city of Corinth in the very same year. The rest of his life we are not so sure of. We know he extensively traveled both alone and with the Scipiones, something we'll talk about more in a little bit, regarding how they affected his later writing. And we know he at least lived down to 118 BC. And according to the satirist Lucian, Polybius lived until the age of 82, and died when he had fell off his horse. Polybius's political career in the Achaean League was certainly abortive, and ended before he could really gain his stride in the mold of his forebears Philopoemon and Aratus of Sicyon. However, his unique circumstances instead compelled Polybius to immortalize his name, not through great political or military actions, but in the composition of history, so as to better comprehend how the world moved from the hegemony of the Hellenistic kings to the domination of Rome within his own lifetime. Sometime during the latter part of his life, Polybius endeavored to compose a universal history. The histories, as they would be referred to, would cover the events of 264 BC, the beginning of the First Punic War, all the way down to the destruction of Carthage and Corinth by Rome in 146, originally planning to end at 168-167 following the defeat of Perseus and the end of the Third Macedonian War. 
While the work's starting and ending points seem Romanocentric, and his section on the Punic Wars is undeniably the most famous aspect of his work, this is grossly underselling the extent of what Polybius wrote about. When I mean a universal history, Polybius goes out of his way to cover the events of all the major powers of the Mediterranean and larger Hellenistic world, clearly aware of how no political entity is an island unto itself, and actions that seemingly occur in isolation hundreds or thousands of miles away can influence the wider history of the Mediterranean. In addition, Polybius dedicates extensive digressions on systems of government, geography, and the art of writing history, and it is believed that Polybius's work numbered about 40 books in length upon completion. When the word books is used in regards to the writings of the classical world, what is actually meant is scroll, since each book would be the length of one scroll of papyrus that would be placed on a shelf, usually with a little tag attached to give the number and rough outline of the content inside. Sadly, the work has not survived in its entirety, or even its majority. Of the 40 books, 1 through 5 survive in their complete form. Book 6 is mostly intact, and 7 through 18 exist as epitomes or abridgments. The remaining pieces are fragmentary. Either individual lines were preserved or are paraphrased, mainly through the efforts of Byzantine copyists and anthologists. Its great length probably did not help its long-term survival, and Polybius's Greek is archaic in diction and in style with the later historian Diodorus Siculus even commenting that he could not stomach the idea of reading Polybius' work from start to finish. With this in mind, let us go over the rough outline of the histories. Each book itself has a clear structure, usually with an opening line about what the intent of the book is, either by summarizing the events that he will cover, or has already covered. Books 1 and 2 are introductory designed to set up the affairs of the major powers prior to the middle of 220 BC, the start of the 140th Olympiad, and the official beginning of Polybius' work. For those unfamiliar with the dating, an Olympiad is a chronological method used by some classical historians, based upon the period of four years from one Olympic Games to the next. The first Olympic Games started in approximately 756 BC, so, 139 complete Olympiads would be about 556 years, leading us to the games of the summer of 220 and the start of the 140th Olympiad. In any case, Book 1 covers the First Punic War between Rome and Carthage, and Book 2 is about Rome's consolidation of Italy and initial expansion into Illyria, the mercenary war of Carthage, and the dealings of the Achaean League and King Antigonus Doson against Cleomenes of Sparta. These events eventually set up the more famous Second Punic War, the origins of which, and initial years down to the Battle of Cannae in 216, are the focus of Book 3. Book 4 leaves the Romans and Carthaginians and turns to the Social War, waged between the young Macedonian ruler, Philip V, and the Achaean League against the rival Aetolian League, an affair concurrent with Hannibal's invasion of northern Italy. Book 5 covers the remainder of the Social War, but also brings in the affairs of the other Hellenistic powers, such as the Fourth Syrian War between the Ptolemies and the Seleucid King Antiochus III. Book 6 takes a pause from the narrative as a whole, and Polybius dedicates it to analyzing the Roman constitution, so as to understand the system of government that allowed Rome to conquer the inhabited world, and ends the book with the immediate aftermath of the Battle of Cannae. The rest of the work is mostly fragmentary, surviving either as individual excerpts by copyists or through extrapolated paraphrasing by authors who relied heavily on Polybius, especially the Roman historian Titus Livy. The content of these fragments include the campaigns of Antiochus III in the east and the invasion of Grecobactria, 
the ultimate destruction of Carthage and Corinth, and the lengthy discussion about writing history and a scathing criticism of the historian Timaeus in Book 12. Given the breadth and depth of Books 1 through 6, it is a great loss to posterity that the remaining 34 were not preserved in their entirety. This is a task that took several decades and great effort to pull off, and we should be grateful that anything has survived at all given the value of his work to us. The question then becomes, why write the history in the first place? The tradition of historiography in the Greek world had its roots going back to the 5th century BC, with the classical triad of Herodotus, Xenophon, and Thucydides at the forefront. Of the three, Thucydides' account of the Peloponnesian War has survived the test of time in terms of reliability and rigorous academic scrutiny, though the others are still immensely valuable. As an educated Greek nobleman, Polybius certainly had access to these works, and the influence of Thucydides is very apparent when you read the lines from Polybius in Book 3. Quote, For if history fails to address questions such as why and how a given event happened, what is left is a prize essay without educational value, something that affords short-term pleasure, but is no help at all for the future. End quote. Then compare it to that of Thucydides in Book 1 describing his work as, quote, a possession forever, rather than a prize essay written for present gratification. Elements of Herodotus certainly bleed through as well, especially when it comes to Polybius's descriptions of geography. The aims of each author in writing their histories vary. Thucydides' first paragraph discusses how the Peloponnesian War was perhaps the greatest event to occur in Greek history, and his work could serve as a guide for future politicians and generals, while Herodotus seems to delight in learning about past events and cultures, stating that he hopes to preserve the deeds and actions of both Greeks and barbarians from being lost to time. The rationale behind writing a history of his times was quite obvious to Polybius, who explains in his opening lines of Book 1, quote, After all, is there anyone on earth who is so narrow-minded or uninquisitive that he could fail to want to know how, and thanks to what kind of political system, almost the entire known world was conquered and brought under a single empire, the Empire of the Romans, in less than 53 years, an unprecedented event, end quote. By the time of Polybius, the world had grown much larger, at least in regards to the Greeks. With the conquests of Alexander the Great, the wars of the successors, and the rise of the Roman Empire, wars, events, and politics taking place had scaled up considerably. The Punic Wars resulted in the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people, with sea battles that dwarfed even the largest of naval engagements during the Peloponnesian War two centuries prior, and it stretched across several continents in intensity. It was therefore appropriate to increase the scale to which a historian composed their histories, moving to a quote-unquote universal history that included all the inhabited world, from Spain to Bactria and all the various powers within. Polybius's unique first-hand experiences and ready access to other sources in the political elite of the Mediterranean world, as we shall explore in a bit, gave him an enormous opportunity to compose his history, and he firmly believed that history is something that only politicians and military commanders should be able to write, largely because their actual experience on the field compared to those who learned exclusively from a book, and the military experience of Polybius provides us with the most accurate description of the system of the Roman legion during the Middle Republic. In the inverse, Polybius believes that studying history is an excellent way to prepare oneself for the political life, and this was a common belief to ancient authors, such as Plutarch, who used the biographies of historical figures to teach moral lessons. 
So, in this circumstance, what are some of Polybius's policies and attitudes towards writing history that makes him so unique among dozens of historians throughout the classical tradition? Polybius's use of sources is an excellent place to begin. While it may seem obvious to us, many ancient authors were not so scrupulous when it came to critically analyzing their sources, either not naming them at all, or simply giving a passing comment comparing the numbers of armies from different accounts. I'm exaggerating a bit, but he really does go that extra mile. In Book 1, Polybius openly demonstrates his methodology when comparing the pro-Roman account of Fabius Pictor and the pro-Carthaginian account of Philinius of Arcragas. Quote, Another, equally important factor that moved me to linger over this war was the failure of Philinius and Quintus Fabius Pictor to have provided us with a sufficiently accurate description of it. Their lives and characters give me no reason to think that they deliberately falsified their accounts, but I do think that they behave rather like people who are in love. Philinius always has the Carthaginians acting sensibly, honorably, and courageously, and the Romans doing the opposite, while Fabius does the same the other way around. End quote. This is likely a conscious emulation of Thucydides, who sought to go to the sources and persons who were most closely connected to the events of the Peloponnesian War. This doesn't mean that Polybius wasn't biased himself. The Achaean League, which he and his family were involved with, were nowhere near as criticized as the rival Aetolian League, who came across as little better than organized bandits, and he carries several ethnic stereotypes that would be held by contemporary educated Greeks and Romans. In fairness to Polybius, he acknowledges the failures of the League and the worst qualities of League heroes like Aratus of Sicyon, and he knew that such an analysis of multiple sources is essential in order to reach the most truthful recounting of events. Polybius's connection to the Scipiones and the other noble Roman families gave him clear first- and second-hand accounts of the events of the Second and Third Punic War, at least from the Roman point of view. His flexible residency in the now immensely important political capital of Rome gave him access to great libraries containing both Roman and Greek historians, and important members of other powers and kingdoms, such as Demetrius I Soter, the Seleucid prince held hostage at Rome and befriended Polybius, who allegedly aided in his escape from the city back to Syria. These second-hand accounts, while certainly useful, are not entirely reliable, as Polybius acknowledges, quote, the subsequent years, the period covered by my history, happened to be those of my own generation and the one before it, and this meant that I either witnessed events myself or talked to people who witnessed them, for it seemed to me that nothing I might write about earlier years could be reliable or authoritative, since I would be writing hearsay based on hearsay." End quote. Whenever he can, Polybius will frequently place the exact texts of treaties in his narratives, such as the ones between Rome and Carthage prior to the First Punic War. Copies of these would be kept in both Rome and Carthage, and the treaties relating to the Achaean or Macedonian matters would also be available via his own experience and access to records, or the Antigonid library taken from King Perseus in the Third Macedonian War. Unlike many of his fellow historians, Polybius also tries his best to get the word-for-word -word rendition of speeches given by politicians and generals, and barring that, he will fully admit when he does not have an exact copy, but will recount the essential outline if he can. Compare this to Livy, who does manage to write beautiful and stirring monologues and speeches by commanders and other individuals, but more than likely composed what should have been said so as to serve the narrative and moral character of the speaker involved, rather than what was actually said. 
Some of the speeches presented by Polybius certainly seem pretty far-fetched, at least in regards to military matters where commanders have to address tens of thousands of men stretched across hundreds of yards who likely spoke several different languages, but the effort he puts in does deserve credibility. Polybius also prides himself on matters of geography, something that should be immediately recognizable to those who have read Herodotus to any extent. Polybius's freedom of movement during his stay in Rome allowed him to travel up and down Italy, including a journey through the Alps to try and retrace Hannibal's steps, and his enlistment into the retinue of Scipio Aemilianus took him to North Africa as well. Polybius claims he visited Gaul, Libya, and Iberia, in addition to his personal experiences in Greece and Italy. In Book 3, the historian discusses that many of his predecessors had attempted to describe the regions in their histories without seeing them firsthand, but none of them should be necessarily blamed given the general lack of information and the hazy parts of maps labeled Here There Be Monsters. Standing upon the shoulders of giants, Polybius felt obligated to visit further given the prior knowledge of his trailblazing forebears. In addition to how travel was far easier and safer for Greek speakers in the wake of Alexander's conquests and the Roman Empire. While his information isn't always perfect, the purpose of such an exercise allows the author to speak with a greater degree of authority and double check the claims of the accounts he records. The extent to which Polybius reflects on the actual methodology of writing history is extremely unusual, even when compared to the praiseworthy Thucydides. Polybius inserts himself into the work to openly address the audience and digress on what he deems to be relevant and important information, and uses first-person pronouns like I, me, or my, doing so far more than any other historical writer from the Greco-Roman world, including Herodotus. He constantly explains how he comes to conclusions, and why his methodology should be implemented in order to reach the clearest representation of the truth. In addition to his self-reflection, Polybius does not pull punches when it comes to criticizing other historians, who he believed weren't up to the mark in providing reasonably accurate accounts. For instance, quote, But I need say no more about the work of writers such as Caraeus and Sosilus. Their work seems to me to have the status and importance of the common gossip of the barber shop. It is not history. End quote. This insult against Caraeus and Sosilus pales in comparison to the beating that Polybius delivers to the histories of Timaeus of Tauromenium. This name might be familiar to those who listened to my opening on Agathocles of Syracuse in episode 38, and it is indeed the same individual. Timaeus was a Sicilian Greek historian who wrote an equally large and comprehensive history of the Mediterranean spanning 40 books down to just before the beginning of the First Punic War and he may also be considered the first author to recognize the formidable power of the Roman Republic. Polybius seems to bear a special grudge against Timaeus, who was the epitome of everything Polybius considers a bad historian. Timaeus had no military or political experience, making him an armchair general, or a quote-unquote bookworm. His analysis of sources was overly excessive and critical, which earned him the nickname Epitimaeus, or slanderer, and he invented speeches where he saw fit. Polybius essentially dedicated the entirety of Book 12 to list the many issues with the work, and makes it a point to begin his own work where Timaeus had left off. So having discussed the approximate outline of Polybius' methodology and attitude towards historiography, let's focus on the analysis and interpretations of his work as a whole. 
One of the essential themes of Polybius' histories is Tyche. Tyche is one of those troubling words that is often ambiguous, since it has multiple meanings, and Polybius isn't too specific in what he is exactly suggesting at any one time. Generally, it's translated as fate, chance, or fortune, the random events that occur throughout history, and was a theme that was incredibly popular in Hellenistic art and literature. It can also be translated as fate with a capital F, a personified representation or cosmic force that controls the destiny of mankind along some sort of determined path. Polybius seems to use multiple meanings to Tyche, and for someone who is generally a rationalist, seeking out cause and effect without attributing it to the divine, this is an unusual characteristic. However, Polybius seems to refer to fate with a capital F regarding matters that are essentially unexplainable, but propel the world into a unilateral direction, that being the rise of the Roman Empire, or as a form of karmic retribution for treachery and blasphemy. The historian is upfront about this, pointing out, quote, Fortune has turned almost all of the events of the known world in a single direction, and forced everything to tend to a single goal. Of course, since nothing is ever easy, it has also been suggested that the use of Tyche is more of a linguistic legacy of the tendency to personify fate as a goddess, and could be approximated as the English phrase regarding unexplicable actions or motives as God knows why, without literally implying God is the reason behind it. In either case, the role that chance or fate plays in history, whether it is divine or not, cannot be excluded from the assessment and the recording of such histories. Given the breadth and scope of Polybius' work, especially in regards to the assessment of the Roman constitution in Book 6, modern scholars have used Polybius' assessment of Rome as being unique compared to their political rivals like Carthage or the Hellenistic world. Certainly the rise of the Roman Empire was shocking to many Greeks, including Polybius. After all, it served as the rationale behind why he wrote his history in the first place, as we discussed already. In one school of thought, such as been put forth by scholars like William Harris in War and Imperialism in Republican Rome, the Romans were unusual in their warlike qualities and were aggressively imperialistic in their attitudes to surrounding states, and Polybius certainly discusses and admires the military virtues of the legion to considerable extent. To Polybius, the imperialist attitudes of the Romans was a worthy ambition to possess, as long as the conflicts are justifiable according to some rule of law, i.e., there has to be an acceptable casus belli, or a reasonable pretext. Quote, I hope to make it clear to any reader that the whole process, from formulation of plans to their fulfillment in imperial rulership over the whole world, was based upon reasonable grounds. End quote. Conversely, the other camp headed by the likes of Arthur Eckstein in Mediterranean Anarchy, Interstate War, and the Rise of Rome, argues that Rome was no more warlike and aggressive than any other ancient state. Polybius recognized that the political system of the Hellenistic world was violent, kings were made or broken on the battlefield and through military conquest, and were just as capable of atrocious acts of betrayal and intrigue. The deep exploration of the military virtues and systems of the Romans may be a consequence of Polybius trying to explain the New World Order to his Greek readers, and perhaps an influence from his close friendship to the Scipiones, one of the most famous military families of Roman history. Now, this is merely a bare-bones summation of the excellent and persuasive work done by both sides of the argument, and in order to not get bogged down in the topic too much, I encourage you to check out both books and my bibliography on my website for further information. 
Polybius' attitude towards the Roman domination of the Greek-speaking world is also something to consider. Clearly, he regards the Roman constitution with considerable fascination, referring to the republican system as a mixed constitution, combining the best elements of aristocracy, monarchy, and democracy that made their government more stable and therefore ideal. The role that fate played in leading the Romans to expand across the Mediterranean and turning it into Mare Nostrum, our sea, is perhaps one of the greatest boons to humanity and the civilized world that has ever been produced at least in Polybius's eyes. Perhaps one could take this as Stockholm Syndrome, or, in the opinion of some scholars, the writings of a traitor, since Polybius was a well-treated captive of Rome for almost two decades, and was essentially on the payroll of the Scipiones. Keep in mind, though, of the ultimate goals in his work. Polybius was essentially writing a history for his Greek audience so as to explain how, effectively, a semi-barbarian power had conquered much of the inhabited world and thrashed several of the most powerful kingdoms that had been in power since the death of Alexander the Great nearly 150 years prior. This was both a gradual and violent shakeup of the world order, and the Romans had supplanted the Greeks' fierce desire for political autonomy and freedom, which frequently was the rallying cry for Greeks under the yoke of the Macedonian kings. The sack of Corinth, one of the most beautiful and wealthiest cities on the Greek mainland, was as brutal as it was shocking, and the Romans allegedly enslaved 150,000 epirots in less than a year afterwards. Yet, despite protestations from senatorial families who were strict conservatives, Hellenism had deeply embedded itself into the Roman cultural framework by at least the late 3rd century BC. Captive Greece took captive her savage conqueror and brought arts to rustic Latium, as Horace would acknowledge. In time, the Greeks would eventually ingratiate themselves into Roman society and blossom into the second sophistic. And perhaps Polybius was an early adopter of the ideology of Roman dominance as being ultimately a net positive. Still, the success of Rome mystified Polybius and his specific reference to Tyche as a driver behind their victories simultaneously was praising Rome as much as it was relegating it to a sense of otherness, similar yet different than a Greek identity. Polybius had died shortly before the troubling 1st century BC, with the collapse of the republican system which he admired so much, and the rise of the Principate under Augustus Caesar, which would continue down to the 15th century AD in some shape or form. He was however, fully aware of the finite lifespan of all great empires and nations, and included this exchange between himself and Scipio Aemilianus, who dwelled on the eventual fate of Rome during the aftermath of Carthage's destruction. Quote, A day will come when sacred Troy shall perish, and Priam and his people shall be slain. And when Polybius, speaking with freedom to him, for he was his teacher, asked him what he meant by the words, they say that without any attempt at concealment, he named his own country, for which he feared when he reflected on the fate of all things human. Polybius actually heard him and recalls it in his history. Polybius's reception in classical antiquity was positive, though he did not achieve the same levels of fame compared to other giants like Livy, Tacitus, and Herodotus. Allegedly, Marcus Junius Brutus had been working on an epitome of Polybius the night before the Battle of Pharsalus in 48 BC, and several authors used Polybius as a reference for composing their own histories, especially Livy, who seems to have respected the Greek scrutiny and tended to defer to his opinions. 
His survival into the present was thanks to the Byzantines, who referred to Polybius in anthologies and epitomes, though they don't seem to have cared much for the material beyond the first five books. Its rediscovery in the West following the migration of Byzantine scholars led to some interest by political scientists in both 16th century Italy and also the founding fathers of the 18th century United States, mentioned explicitly by John Adams as an influence in the Federalist Papers. Much of Polybius's current reputation has really only emerged in the last century, focusing on his methodology and technical expertise in the way he crafts history, rather than the literary merit of his writing style. As I mentioned earlier, that near-contemporary authors thought Polybius's work was a slog to go through in the original Greek. I firmly advocate that Polybius is still an enjoyable read, and much of what we know about one of the most important periods in the history of the world is entirely due to his efforts and the fragments that survive. This episode was not intended to be an all-encompassing look at Polybius, but rather a summation so as to better understand the development of Greek historiography during the Hellenistic period and the framework which we largely will be operating under for the foreseeable future. If you want to learn more about Polybius, I encourage you to head to my website and show notes for this episode, where I have included several studies on him that I used in my bibliography. If you like this episode and want to support the show, consider subscribing and leaving a review, or by donating to my coffee page or Amazon book wishlist. All of these links including links to my various social media accounts, will be available in the podcast description. The next time we meet, we'll be entering what is likely the first of a two-part series on the First Punic War, and then I will give you an overall schedule for the next few months of the episode lineup. So, until then, I wish you all and your friends and family the best of health, and I hope you'll join me once again for the Hellenistic Age podcast. <laughs>